These first few weeks of the season of the church we call ordinary time, these first few weeks after Pentecost, we've been focusing on the person and work of the Spirit. And this morning in this last installment, I want to help you think for a few minutes this morning about cultivating the kind of heart that would and could listen to the Holy Spirit. Those two words, would and could, are are both important. Because one suggests capacity, could. The other suggests character. Like, who would? It it, kind of begs the question, what would be the inner state of a person who would listen to the Spirit? Who would desire that? I mean, it could be a little scary. Could sound controlling to us. Meaning that we're submitting ourselves to this voice. So let's think for a few minutes. Who would and who could? How do we cultivate a heart that would listen to the Spirit? This is important, I want to suggest, because a voice, God's voice, has guided human beings since the beginning. Adam and Eve heard a voice. Noah heard a voice. Abraham heard a voice. As did Moses, as did David, as did the judges, as did the kings, as did the prophets, as did John the Baptist, and as did those who heard Jesus. If we were to just think of Paul, whose story we read this morning, and the fruit of all his ministry and his writings in the Bible, and just think about the, the uh, impact they've had on human beings for going on 2,000 years, that is all the result of a voice, of hearing a voice. And it's this notion that voice and listening lies behind all of human history that puts listening and cultivating the kind of heart that couldn't would listen to the Holy Spirit front and center. But it doesn't have to be said other than just rhetorically to remind ourselves that we're in a hurry. And we're not used to listening. We're trained to use our minds to get information and to complete assignments. But the God revealed to us in Jesus in our scriptures is infinitely personal and relational. I spent all this week teaching a doctor of ministry intensive at Fuller Seminary. So I was in a room for, you know, uh, five times 12, 60 hours uh, with a, a group of doctoral ministry students. And the course is entitled Spirituality and Ministry. So we're talking about these exact things. And to just, so whether they were young people, doctoral ministry students typically aren't young, so young would be like 35 and typically up to about 50 or so. So these are people who have significant experience in ministry. And to just go around that table of ministers who find it almost impossible to cultivate a heart who could actually do this. To find sufficient time in ministry, gentlemen, in, I'm looking at our two newly ordained who I'll introduce to you at the announcements. Ministry can drive one out of the habits of the heart that it takes to cultivate a listening spirit. 
So being quiet in a listening way in the presence of God to tune into a voice that we don't hear in the streets or in the media in the workplace. This is the task of cultivating this kind of heart. The writer of the Proverbs knew the value of this when he wrote, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And this is what I want to suggest to you this morning is the underlying aspect of listening. It's cultivating ears to hear. When Jesus said to crowds of people wondering if they had ears to hear, he didn't wonder if they had capacity. He wasn't wondering if their inner ear was working or if it was connected well to their brain. He was wondering about the present state of their inner being, what we might call soul or heart, that sort of executive center of us. Is it bent towards hearing or is it bent towards filtering and managing? And Jesus knew precisely that the vast number of people who heard him did not have ears to hear. They had ears to filter and manage him according to their present bent of their heart. So when he taught the way of God or the things of God, when he demonstrated that he was the way, the truth, and the life, most people did not hear that, catch this, they did not hear that in a way that was harmonious to their present inner being. They heard it in a way that it was discordant. And this is why we have to then cultivate a heart that can be, that has the potential to be harmonious with what we hear. So in our reading in Acts, in this story of Paul hearing this voice, we see that it shapes actually all of human history, as well as Ananias hearing this voice. So Paul hears the voice, if you look at your text there, of Jesus whom you are persecuting. And this alerts us, I think, to the converting nature of the ability to hear and the converting nature of God's voice. So, I mean, how is this converting? Well, think with me for a minute. Jesus is obviously alive. You don't hear the voice of, nor can you persecute a dead person. So when Paul hears this voice, it has a major tuning effect. I mean, right? Paul was out trying to persecute those who said they were hearing the voice of Jesus and following him. And so Paul was about as far out of alignment as one can get, or about as far out of harmony as one can get. But he hears this voice, and it has a converting nature to it. All right, so hold that thought in your mind, and then think of the lovely word, repent. You say, well, why is this a lovely word? Because it's piano tuning. I mean, I used to own pianos. I used to work in a piano store and sell pianos. And so I know the importance of tuning. And voice has that capacity because it has a converting nature to it. It takes what is discordant in us if we want it, if we have ears to hear, if we desire it, it will take that which is out of tune in our life and that voice will tune it. 
and make it in harmony with the rest of the strings, that is to say, God's community and all that he's doing and that sort of stuff. And there's also a sending nature to God's voice. As you read in your passage that Jesus said to him, now get up and go. Now, can you see why some people don't have ears to hear? I mean, come on, let's keep it real, right? Can we keep it real for a second? Would you actually want to hear God say that to you? Get up and go? I mean, what if he sent you someplace that you hadn't had in mind? Right? If we just keep it real, we don't all have the kind of heart who would even want to hear God's voice, much less cultivating the capacity to listen to it. And the one is necessarily dependent on the other. You won't, you won't develop the capacity to hear it until you come to the place that you actually want to. But it gets worse. Look at your passage. And you will be told what to do. Right? Like, who likes being told what to do? And we think we just don't like it when it's our spouse or our boss. But what if it's something more fundamental? What if it's a character of our being that just doesn't like to be told what to do, and though we've never thought about it consciously, would and could include God's voice? But this sending nature, we see it everywhere in the Bible. For instance, just a couple more passages in Acts. Acts 13, after fasting and praying, the group of Christians heard the Holy Spirit to send out Paul and Barnabas. Acts 15, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and the community who was listening to him to guide the life of the church in these certain ways that are talked about in Acts 15. Well, second of all, in this passage, Ananias hears the voice. And so after this time of confused, hurtful, sort of fussing about, he hears the Lord say to him, Ananias, there's that word again, go. And of course, this necessitates a response, but that response can only be born out of cultivating the kind of heart who would and could respond, who would actually cherish hearing God's voice and would want to respond. And I just want to say that there are, there are historical consequences here. This, look at your text, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. This is literally a pivotal point in all of human history. And it is rooted in voice, and it's rooted in hearing. And what this, I think, is meant to teach us is that as we listen to the word of God, it's important to remember that it's not something for us to figure out. I mean, especially for those of us who are professionals and who have courses in exegesis and biblical language and that sort of stuff, the, if we're not careful, the Bible can become to us data and something for us to figure out. As if finding the Pauline logic in a passage is the same as having a heart that's cultivated to hear it and to want to harmoniously respond to it. Those are very different things. I have known, I've, over, I've been the overseer of hundreds, if not thousands of pastors over the last decades. I've known probably tens of thousands of pastors who know their way around a Greek dictionary, but have not yet begun to think about how do I cultivate the kind of heart who is naturally harmonious 
to what I might dig up in a Greek participle. Those are very different things. This is why Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Remember that lovely parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus goes through what's arguably the most important teaching in all of religious history, not just Christian, but religious history. And at the end of this beautiful teaching, it's not just sat there, again, as something to try to cultivate an understanding about. No, what Jesus calls for is practice. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that's like the wise woman or the wise man who built their house on the rock. So James is not saying anything new as he thinks through what Jesus meant and says, don't just hear the word of God, but do it. Remember that passage in James? Well, when we get to our gospel reading in John 16, if you want to look there, we see once again the converting ethos or the converting power of hearing the voice of God. And the way to think about this might be to uh, think of that passage in Romans 8 where Paul says that the whole world is groaning, the whole world, not just the human world, but the whole world is groaning in agony waiting for its deliverance. And what Jesus is saying here in John 16 is that God's new world is precisely being born here. But the way it's being born is through voice and therefore through cultivating listening. This is why when you look at your passage, when you see the spirit is teacher, isn't it plain as soon as I say it that that requires a student as listener? A Rabboni requires a mathetes. If you, you can't have a mathetes, an apprentice, a student, a disciple, without first having a Rabboni, a voice, a rabbi. And in this case, the spirit is this voice. And we are meant to be then the students, the listeners, the ones aligning their lives to this voice. And so you can see that this is not just intellectual or conceptual growth that's in view here when it talks about the Spirit leading you into all truth. It, of course, would include things that are by nature intellectual and conceptual, but it can't be reduced to that. What's in view here when it talks about the Spirit leading you into all truth is guidance into the way of Jesus in his life who he said, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the invitation here is cultivating the inner willingness, the inner desire, and the, the inner ability to hear the voice of the Spirit that he might lead us into life in the kingdom as taught and modeled by Jesus. This is what is meant. The Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. And all that's associated with this way of life that's now breaking out and about to spread. So we've talked this morning a bit about season of the church year. And when I think about the coming season of Holy Trinity Church, and when I think about the moment and time in which we live, with all of its associated difficulties, again, I mean, just sitting in that room of really, happened to be all men this time, it's usually not, it's usually a nice mix of men and women, but for some reason this time it happened to be all men, Sitting in that room with those men, you know, you're just reminded, and I don't remember all the stats off the top of my head now. We worked with them this week, but I remember this one. You know that seven out of ten ministers would quit and do something else if they could? If they could find something else to do to earn a living, seven out of ten of them would quit. It's not a great time to be a pastor. One guy in the room told the story of how when he used to talk to people, he's about my age, so he's old enough to know. 
Uh, he said, when I used to sit by people on airplanes and they'd ask me what I do, and I said I was a pastor, I'd get a certain sort of uh, response. Now, when people on an airplane ask me what I do and say I'm a pastor, he said it's the most uncomfortable, cold silence you can imagine virtually every time. And of course, we who wear these kind of clothes and are ministers, we're just, sim- we're just simply an icon of the overall rejection of the church and the overall marginalization of Christianity, the overall marginalization of religion, because more and more what's happening is, listen to me, more and more what's happening is that people cannot differentiate between what's happening here and what happened in that nightclub in Florida last night. It is to them all the same ridiculous stupidity and that religion is now the prime animating evil on the earth. That is increasingly the social psychology we live in. But this is not new. The church has been this through this before and worse. You know, the centuries between the sixth century and the Reformation are typically thought of as what? The Dark Ages. Although scholarship in the last century or so is starting to deliver them from that term, and it's increasingly known as the Middle Ages, because there is great Christianity in those centuries, enormously beautiful and powerful Christianity that was a little link in the chain of obeying this voice and sort of keeping the light burning in the earth. And I'm just increasingly convinced that that's our role. I've been thinking and thinking about why God, you know, kind of so spoke to me, that dumb pepper tree. Remember that pepper tree that we talked about during Advent? Where I go once a month for my spiritual retreat at the old mission? Just its incredible sustainability, 200 years. Some missionary, monk missionary, took from a trader a pepper seed and planted it on that ground. And now I'll bet the base of that gnarled, knotted trunk has got to be 20 or 25 feet around. Well, my dear friend Jason Askenazi, one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given, went to the mission and asked them, can I have a part of that tree? Because this means a lot to my pastor. And it means a lot to us as a community of faith. Because we want to be that kind of faithful presence on the earth. We're trying to cultivate something at Holy Trinity that will last and serve God and bless the poor and heal the sick and cast out demons and help people see the reality of God and his kingdom. We want to create something that doesn't just last for us and our children, but for 200 years. And so Jason was able to get a piece of that tree, and you know, he's a woodshop teacher, and make these two pieces of wood for me. I want you guys to pass it around. I want you to touch it. This, I think, is our task. Listen to this amazing prayer from the Dark Ages, the seventh century. You know, a century in which the first forms of religious confusion in what was known as Christendom were breaking out as Islam was sort of coming to force in the seventh century, Judaism was rocking, Christianity was rocking, people were wondering where the world was going. Listen to this beautiful prayer born from the seventh century. Hear us, O never failing light, Lord our God, our only light, the fountain of light. 
May our souls be lamps of yours, sparked and illuminated by you. May our souls shine and burn with the truth and never go out in darkness and ashes. May we be shining from your light. May our lamps be burning and not be extinguished. Being filled with the splendor of our Lord Jesus Christ, may we shine forth inwardly. May the gloom of sins be cleared away and the light of perpetual faith abide with us. So we turn now to this next season of ordinary time. I've been praying and and sort of commissioned this wonderful team of teachers that will be with us as I head out to sabbatical to lead us precisely into this way of daily humble obedience, rooted in cultivating a listening heart, a heart that's bent towards hearing, to being faithful, to light bearing, to salt preserving. This is what our team of teachers are gonna do in the coming weeks. You know, when I was a young evangelist, I used to both hear this all the time as sort of the, you know, the close to an evangelistic sermon, preached it myself as the close to an evangelistic sermon many times. But I want you to hear this famous passage from Revelation 3.20 in our context this morning of trying to become the kind of people who cultivate a heart who both would and could hear the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. How might we arrange both the inward structure of our being and the affairs of our life to create the space needed such that we would open the door, invite Jesus in, and, be, and to eat with him, which in our case here depicts a kind of relational reliance. Jesus said, I only do the things I see my father doing. I only say the things I hear him saying. And then in John 20, Jesus said, in the same manner that the father sent me, so I send you. That is a picture of relational reliance. And that relational reliance requires cultivating the kind of heart that wants to be in that relationship and wants to hear that word. I think it's core to what we're called to. Core to just kind of holding public space, worshiping God in public, being a faithful presence, cultivating in us the kind of people who could announce and embody and demonstrate the goodness and greatness of God's kingdom for 200 years. And then let's just let God do with us whatever he does with us. But let's cultivate that kind of heart. As I go away on sabbatical, I think there are some things that I need to discern and I think that we need to discern. And that is what direction is the voice giving to us? And what do we want? And what are the next steps to becoming a faith community that hears, responds to, and proclaims that voice for 200 years? Beth is now going to lead us in our normal quiet time, but in a special way this morning. I'm reminded that Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. 
when Todd mentioned this relational alliance, I have um, a practical example of that. My dad, we're, we're, we are uh, Arabic, and there's a little cultural practice that we do that I, I can't even tell you why, but um, um, when his children, my dad's children, call him dad, he calls us back dad. And now the grandkids are um, calling him Jiddu, and he calls them back Jiddu. And it happens all in our families, and it's a way of relational intimacy known by this term of love and kinship. And the amazing thing about it is I have two other sisters. And when he calls one of us dad, all three of us can discern which dad he's talking to. Just by his tone and by the intimacy to which we share relationship, I can know when he's talking to me or to one of my sisters just by the gesture or tone of his voice. And Jesus said, my sheep will know and hear my voice and follow me. When I was a spiritual director uh, in training, one of the first things we learned was how to listen. Most of my training has been to listen to another. And so right now, we're going to have a training exercise in listening. So um, this is a soundtrack, a soundbite, if you will. And I'd like to have you think of this as a type of tutor. And um, I'm very aware that probably we aren't completely noise-free in any of our homes. Even as I was praying this morning, someone's jazz player alarm went off. And I just know that it's very difficult to filter out or tune out or turn off noise. Because if we do it for the exterior, there's probably noise in our head. And so this exercise, if you'll follow it, is more of being able to notice the noise instead of fight against it. Notice the noise and begin to let the noisy edges dissolve as you pay attention to yourself and your intention to hear God. So think of this exercise now as a tutoring to let the noisy edges be heard and noticed and then dissolved as you intend to hear the word of God.
be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God.